Hi everyone and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that Halloween is a time of year that a lot of us dog crewmates look forward to. That particularly crisp bite in the air, the explosion of leaves that herald in the fall, and of course, the propensity to indulge in all things spooky and ghoulish. For the McCann family of Alexandra, Virginia though, Halloween 2008 wasn't just spooky, it was nightmarish. And their nightmare continues to this day as the mystery surrounding their daughter Annie and her baffling death still haunts them, following them like a ghost of the cruelest designs. When a shy, sweet girl from the Virginia suburbs is found dead in the projects of Baltimore, you know there's a lot of hashtag questions to be asked. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. It was October 30th, 2008, and Annie McCann was busy. At 16 years old, she believed that she had aged out of being able to trick-or-treat. So instead of creating an elaborate costume like she had in previous years, Annie channeled her natural artistic talent into making ornate goodie bags for the trick-or-treating children of her Alexandria, Virginia neighborhood instead. Carefully designing and putting together candy and small toy-filled bags for the neighborhood kids didn't just speak to Annie's artistic eye, it was a sign of how thoughtful and caring that she was, too. A junior at West Potomac High, Annie's parents, Dan and Mary Jane, described their youngest child as, quote, funny and quirky, though still young for her age. As the Washington Post wrote, quote, she didn't hang out at malls or party with friends. At 16, she still collected Arthur cartoon DVDs and Madeline books. She was a new driver and she had a laughably bad sense of direction. And as she had only just gotten her ears pierced in August, she was religious about cleaning them with a Bactine solution. The whole McCann family was devoutly Catholic and it was reported that Annie attended mass almost daily on top of her schedule between classes, seeing her friends and on top of basketball practices too. She loved her beagle dog, Breezy Max, and he was a frequent feature in the paintings that were framed around the McCann household. Her parents were admittedly protective of her, and they made sure to monitor her internet usage. Her mother had finally agreed to let Annie get a Facebook on the conditions that she share the password with her and that she was allowed to check her daughter's page anytime she wanted. A described homebody, Annie had a small group of friends, but she was well-liked by her peers, despite her bouts of shyness and her general practice of keeping mostly to herself. All in all, she was, in a word, sheltered. Sheltered, but seemingly content and happy. The question of how happy Annie really was is something her parents only considered on the afternoon of October 31st, 2008. On that Halloween morning, the McCann household was bustling a little less noisily than usual. Mary Jane had headed up to upstate New York to visit Sam, their son who was studying at Ithaca, so it was just Dan and Annie at home. At 6 a.m., Dan poked his head into his daughter's room as he prepared to head off into the Capitol, where he worked at the TSA. 
In the shadow of the early morning, he could make out the shape of Annie's body underneath her comforter. I imagine he must have called out quietly to let her know to start getting up and get ready for school as he was leaving for work. He might have wished her a happy Halloween and probably told her he loved her before he left the house. It was only around three o'clock or so that anyone realized that the day had taken an unexpected turn. In line with Annie's parents' protective streak, she had a routine down for her afternoons. Once she arrived home from school, and if her mother happened to not be there, given that she worked in IT at the White House, Annie would give her mom a call and let her know that she'd gotten home safely. The McCanns let Annie use the family's white Volvo to get to and from school, and though she did have her license, like I said earlier, they weren't too confident in their daughter's navigation skills. In an interview with 2020, Dan told reporters that he followed Annie on occasion the first few days that she drove herself to school because there was a real concern that she might get lost on the way. I'm all for parents doing their parenting thing, but I have to admit that honestly, some of their quirks with the way that they treated Annie, even after she turned 16, they would have absolutely rubbed my independence loving ass the entirely wrong way, especially when I was a bitchy little teenager. In any regard, up at Ithaca, Mary Jane was worried even from the 350-ish miles away since Annie hadn't called her. She just had a feeling, as mothers do, that something was wrong. The clockwork-like routine Annie adhered to had been disrupted, and even from states away, Mary Jane was disturbed. She called the house to no avail. She called a neighbor and explained the situation, asking if there were any signs of Annie. The neighbor hadn't seen her, and even more worryingly, Annie's white Volvo wasn't in the driveway either. Mary Jane immediately went from worried to panicked. She called Dan, letting him know what was going on, and immediately he headed back to the suburbs from his office in downtown DC. By the time he got home, there was still no sign of Annie, but there was a different sign, a sign that the McCanns were right to be worried. As Dan walked into the house, the phone was ringing and on the other end of the line, an automated message was playing. Dear parent, this message is to alert you that your son or daughter did not attend their classes at West Potomac High today. Annie had never made it to school. Dan thought back to that morning, remembering the fact that he saw his daughter asleep in her bed before he left for work. If Annie had never gone to school, then where had she gone? Where was their daughter? The search for Annie started almost immediately once the McCanns realized that she was missing. Dan called Mary Jane up in Ithaca to break the news that Annie had never gone to school that day, and just as quickly, she got back into her car with Sam in tow, and they began the nightmarish drive back to Virginia where her daughter had seemingly vanished. As Dan waited for the police to show up after calling in about the disappearance, he didn't know what the hell to do. So he started to search the house. And what he found turned his own panic into unmitigated dread. Because on top of Annie's neatly made bed was a letter. A letter nobody in the family had ever expected the sheltered and quiet 16-year-old to write. Annie poured her heart out in the letter. Only parts of it have been shared with the public, and in it, she wrote, quote, This morning, 
I thought about killing myself, but I realized I can start over instead. I don't want help and I'm no longer scared. I'm buying a plane ticket far away from here. Just know for the first time in my life, I'll be happy. I love life and I'm ready to live. If you love me, you'll let me go. Please don't go looking for me. Ever the thoughtful daughter, despite admitting that she was running away, Annie ended the letter with a promise that she would be careful, careful with whatever it was that she was setting out to do. In reviewing her room, it was noticed that all of her favorite clothes were missing, as was her jewelry. Later, investigators would come to find that she had also taken a box of Cheerios and $1,000 in cash, which she had allegedly saved over the last few years. Needless to say, Dan was frantic when the police finally arrived at the door. However, they didn't share much of his panic. With the note in hand, the police made it clear Annie had simply run away, as teenagers are wont to do. Her note had made it obvious that that was her intention. The police were confident Annie would turn up in a few days, either by her own volition or she'd be found in the meantime with the searches that they promised that they would conduct in the area. Hell, maybe she just decided to skip school and hang out with friends for the day, and this was all some big misunderstanding. The McCanns weren't exactly comforted by this blase blase attitude. Annie wasn't just some normal teenager. None of this behavior was normal by quiet, shy, sheltered Annie's standards in the slightest. None of this behavior, nothing about the situation, nothing made any sense. The next day, the family and some friends began conducting their own searches. They frantically scoured local airports and train stations, hoping that someone had seen Annie or had any sort of clue to share about where Annie could be found. But there was nothing. For all the world, when Annie had left her home the day before, she had truly well and up and vanished. The McCanns were stuck, trapped between a head start of understanding Annie's unexplained disappearance and then stymied by absolutely nothing else to go on in terms of finding her. The next day, though, on November 2nd, just 48 hours after Annie was reported missing, the McCanns would know where their daughter was. Except with this information, it was only then that the nightmare felt like it was truly just beginning. Detective Sergeant Jones suspected that he had an idea of what he would find when he arrived on the scene for the call that he had just received through the Baltimore City Police Dispatch at 3 a.m. on November 2nd. As Sean Jones made his way through the city streets, Perkins' home was his destination. Located between the waterfront neighborhood of Fells Point and Baltimore's Little Italy, Perkins Homes has been one of the longest running public housing developments in the city. It's been operating and serving Baltimore's most vulnerable for over 75 years. The neighborhood Perkins was located in was admittedly a rough one and known to have one of the higher rates of crime throughout the entire city. So when Jones fielded a call from dispatch that there was what appeared to be a dead body that had been discovered by a neighbor bringing his trash out to the community dumpster, he figured he was about to be met with the body of a local drug addict. He could not have been more wrong. When Jones arrived on the scene, he experienced something most career police officers only do rarely, shock. 
because laying like a piece of the discarded trash strewn about her was the body of a young woman who certainly didn't look anything like the person Jones had expected to find. What shocked him even more as he began examining the scene before him was what he found inside the backpack that lay just a few inches away from the girl's body. Because inside the backpack was a hall pass of all things, except it was made out for West Potomac High School. And the ID named the dead young woman at his feet as 16-year-old Annie McCann. Jones made another assumption as he began the series of calls to connect him to the police force of the town that this girl lived in. This, he immediately believed while surveying the bizarre scene before him, was clearly a homicide. Things only continued to spiral further into confusion when the McCanns learned on that Sunday morning when the police arrived at their home that Annie had been found. Dead, more than 50 miles away in a city that she had no connection to, and her body had been found abandoned behind a housing project dumpster. Death, especially sudden and unexpected ones, rarely make sense in the immediate aftermath. That said, all of the circumstances surrounding Annie's death made completely zero sense to her friends and family. What the hell had Annie been doing in Baltimore, a place that she'd only visited a few times with family? Annie's goodbye letter made even less sense when her friends heard about it. Speaking to the Washington Post in 2009, her friend Tiara Sugg said, quote, she always had a smile on her face. She was a happy person, a religious person. The day before she went missing, we had lunch together. Nothing was wrong. Tiara even said that Annie was excited for the day after Halloween because that Saturday, she and her father planned to join Mary Jane and Sam up in New York for a visit. So what happened in the span of a few hours to convince Annie that she should leave home forever? As Annie had been found out of state, the Baltimore police were the law enforcement division that had jurisdiction over investigating her death. As Fairfax police delivered the devastating news to the McCanns on that Sunday morning, additional Baltimore officers were deployed to the scene of Annie's body and other officers made the trip down to the McCanns home in Virginia to see what else they could discover to answer the question of what really happened to Annie. Several blocks away from where Annie's body was found, the family's white Volvo was discovered abandoned at a gas station. There was no sign of struggle inside the car or any sign at all that something nefarious had taken place. The strangest thing that police noticed was laying just alongside the car on the ground was a bottle of Bactine and the bottle was empty. Police took the car and the bottle into custody, and when forensic testing had been completed by November 18th, there were two major things of note. One, one distinct fingerprint had been found inside the Volvo, and two, there was also DNA on the mouth of the Bactine bottle, and it was Annie's. Let's discuss the fingerprint first. The fingerprint found inside the Volvo actually matched somebody in the system, someone already pretty familiar with Baltimore police, a local teenager named Darnell Kinlaw, and he was quickly hauled in by police. The story he had to tell them, though, was a fucking doozy. Darnell admitted that, yes, he had been inside this Volvo, along with a handful of other friends. 
The story he presented to the Baltimore police was this. Darnell and his friends had happened upon the Volvo and noticing that it appeared to be abandoned, they planned to take it for a joyride. Upon getting into the car, they noticed that it wasn't abandoned and that a girl, Annie, was actually in the car and that she was dead, lying face down in the back. Instead of doing literally anything else but this, the boys allegedly just dumped Annie's body behind the dumpster and still took the car out joyriding anyway. It's the suggested callousness of it all for me, frankly. And also the legitimate struggle I have to even imagine anyone going through with such a hideously disrespectful treatment of anyone, let alone a dead body. How can you just dump a body like that and then take the car that seems to belong to the dead person where their dead body was found and go joyriding in it without a care in the world afterwards? The police, however, didn't seem to share these qualms because they accepted Darnell's story pretty much without question. Out of the other people that were there that night, only one other teenager in the group was brought in for questioning. And he told the same story as Darnell. They'd found the car. They'd found Annie's body in the back seat. They dumped her and took the car. It strikes me as too convenient a story to be believed, but that's exactly what the BPD did. Let's revisit the other clue that the police discovered at the scene of the abandoned car. The Bactine bottle. As I said earlier, Annie had gotten her ears pierced back in August, and she was known to be incredibly diligent about cleaning them. Probably scarred from that one episode of Arthur when DW had a dream that her ears turned green like the rest of us 90s kids. She usually carried the little spray bottle, only five ounces, with her. So it almost made sense that the Bactine bottle was found where the car was abandoned. What didn't make sense was that the childproof top had been removed, and that would take quite a lot of finagling to do so. And on the lip of the bottle was Annie's DNA, but that was the only place Annie's DNA was found on it. As the police carried on with their initial investigation, Annie's body was taken to the Maryland State Medical Examiner's Office for an autopsy, which was overseen by Dr. David R. Fowler, it wouldn't be until March of 2009 that he released his findings, but in the meantime, the family was told by police that there weren't any signs of a beating, strangulation, stabbing. Nothing violent seemed to have happened to cause Annie's death, so they would have to wait for the final report before learning how their daughter died. Within a week of finding her body, Annie's funeral in Alexandria had been planned for the 9th, but before the McCanns could bury their daughter, they received a strange message from the funeral director overseeing Annie's services, and she needed to speak with them. Diane Downey was a veteran at her job. She had worked as a funeral director in the Alexandria area for over 25 years by 2008, and yet she was unnerved to the point that she felt she needed to share her misgivings with the McCanns before they buried Annie. What she had to share with them almost completely contradicted what the police had told the McCanns. When the funeral home received Annie's body, they noted several things that seemed amiss. For one, 
there were several instances of trauma on her body that the ME didn't disclose and the police didn't tell the McCanns about, including between 20 and 40 abrasions. Not to mention the large, quote, goose egg bruise on her forehead that was so noticeable when the McCanns saw it, they hesitated about whether they would go forward with an open casket viewing because of how unsightly it was. Furthermore, there was a strange sort of mark above Annie's right eyebrow that has never been explained. The McCanns believe it resembles a burn mark that might come from a cigarette. Other strange injuries that the police didn't mention, Annie had a chipped tooth. There was some sort of marking on her left ankle in the shape of a J and appeared to have been branded there. And Diane Downey stated that when the funeral home received Annie's body, her fingertips appeared, quote, wilted, shriveled like raisins, almost as if, quote, her body had been soaked for several hours in water. Most concerningly of all was what the embalmer noticed and what convinced Diane to speak with the McCanns. There were signs that Annie may have been sexually assaulted. For those of us in the true crime realm, we're familiar with the more gruesome aspects of death, like the stages of decomposition and putrefaction and what all the body does upon death. When death occurs, the body, naturally, loses control of most bodily functions and muscles will relax before rigor mortis sets in. What the embalmer witnessed when they received Annie's body was, in his opinion, not that and not normal. Annie's rectum was, quote, grossly distorted to such a degree that he believed that she had been sodomized and that this wasn't an instance of typical muscle relaxation after death. Speaking to the Washington Post, the embalmer said, quote, he had never seen such a case in thousands of bodies that he had worked with throughout his career. The McCanns, obviously, were horrified, but they were also now worried because if the police were already lying to them about the state of their daughter's body, what other things were they trying to sweep under the rug? Having realized that the police were hiding things from them, the McCanns hired a private investigator, retired homicide detective Davis Morton, to lead their own investigation as Baltimore police continued theirs. One of Morton's first moves to head to Baltimore himself and scour the area for anyone who might have seen or interacted with Annie on October 31st or November 1st before she turned up dead on the early morning of the 2nd. Armed with flyers and photographs of Annie, he was prepared to get her name and image out there. Morton, however, quickly found that people in the area weren't willing to share much, either because no one recalled seeing the skinny brunette teenager or because they didn't want to share what they did know. On a hunch, knowing that Annie had a sweet tooth, he popped into Vaccaro's Pastry Shop, a well-known bakery in the Little Italy neighborhood, just a few feet from where Annie was found, to see if anyone there remembered Annie or had seen her. His hunch proved right. When Morton entered the shop, asking employees behind the counter if anyone recognized the girl whose photo he showed them, one waitress gasped because not only did a clerk recognize her as well, but the waitress had served Annie two days before her body was found, the same day that she'd left Virginia. Not only that, but Annie hadn't been alone. The waitress relayed the story to Morin over a two-hour interview that concluded with a composite sketch of the woman who had been with Annie. 
On Halloween day, Annie had gone into Vaccaro's with coffee on her mind. She ordered a cappuccino and asked for extra whipped cream. The waitress distinctly remembered that because she warned Annie about how sweet the whipped cream was and didn't want her to be overwhelmed by having even more on top of what was already served with the coffee. Annie only laughed and told her that she didn't mind. She asked if she could try a cannoli as well, and the waitress gave her an additional free sample with the order. She said that Annie was, quote, friendly and polite and that she, quote, seemed nice, which is why she was surprised by Annie's companion that day. At table number eight, Annie sat with an older woman, probably around her mid-twenties if the waitress had to guess, who looked tired and a little haggard with the heavy makeup she was wearing in a bid to conceal the dark under-eye circles that the waitress could still notice. The woman had long, dark hair, and her behavior seemed to suggest that, quote, she wanted to be somewhere else. The woman's manicure also stuck out to the waitress as well. She said that the nails were painted a, quote, puke yellow color, one that she had never seen before. Annie and this woman were at Vaccaro's for about 45 to 60 minutes, and the waitress said that they sat at their table from anywhere between 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Halloween day. She remembered that there wasn't, quote, any laughter or smiling between the women, and that Annie, quote, appeared to be doing all the talking. When she did hear the older woman talk, the waitress said that, quote, she spoke very softly and seemed to be very tired. Despite this new clue in lead, the Baltimore police didn't follow up on it because they had a new clue of their own, and it was supporting a different kind of theory. When Baltimore investigators arrived in Fairfax, they were given access to the McCann's house, and more specifically, Annie's bedroom. What they found there added only another layer of shock to the case. Under Annie's bed and in a notebook found in her room were additional notes. Notes that seemed to be precursors to the one that Annie had left on her bed on Halloween morning. Within the notes, Annie wrote at length about emotional pain that she had suffered in the months before her disappearance and death. In one, she stated that, quote, the pressure has gotten to me. I can't do it anymore. She wrote that she had been engaging in anorexia and that she was depressed. In another note, she seemed to be writing to a specific friend and perhaps most ominously of all said, quote, my suicide has nothing to do with you. The McCanns were shocked. Annie had never shared any feelings of depression with them. And though they and the family doctor kept an eye on her weight because she was thin at only 110 pounds when she stood 5'9", there was nothing that indicated that she was restricting her food or suffering from anorexia. And they certainly never thought that she was at risk of taking her own life. And here, I'd like to just note, we're going to be discussing suicide much more frequently throughout the episode, so consider this a trigger warning and please make sure to take care of yourself if this topic is upsetting to you. One of the strange things about Annie's writings was that two of them were found underneath her bed, almost purposely crumbled and also scribbled out over. There was an X slashed through one of the letters entirely that spoke of suicide, and various words relating to her death were also crossed out. So, what did it all mean? Had Annie considered suicide and then changed her mind, only wanting to run away instead? In March, five months after Annie had died and so many days with the McCanns searching for the answers to those two questions, the medical examiner returned his findings, and so too did the police. Cause of death, acute intoxication by dithylamino dimethylphaline acetamide, 
otherwise known as acute intoxication by lidocaine, the active ingredient in Bactine, the same product Annie was using at the time of her death to keep her newly pierced ears clean. And from that, the Emmy ruled that the manner of death, suicide. With the Emmy's findings, the police doubled down, agreeing with the theory that Annie had taken her own life by ingesting the entire bottle of the OTC spray. So, case closed, as far as Baltimore police were concerned. The head of the Baltimore's homicide unit, Major Terrence McLarney, had this to say when approached by the McCanns who were horrified at the ruling. Annie drank Bactine, McLarney said. It's just a poison. People drink poison. It's true, we can't find another one with Bactine. When they decide to kill themselves, they use what is there. The point is, she poisoned herself. Um, I don't know about you guys, but personally, I've never heard of this particular manner of suicide. Death by poison, and certainly suicide by means of ingesting toxic substances, sure. Death by pain reliever is no stranger to the methods that we're familiar with in the true crime world. But Beth, death by Bactine, that's a new one. Annie's dad found this idea of death by Bactine hard to believe as well. And he said as much in a response to McClarney's admittedly callous statement. Quote, what gives Major McClarney the omniscience to understand the circumstances under which lidocaine was ingested in a greater volume than a full container of Bactine? The idea that a human being in despair would say, maybe this will do it, and knock down large quantities of it is preposterous. How the hell did that much lidocaine get in her? He raises very good questions here, to be quite honest, because in fact, the amount of lidocaine found in Annie's system was more than the bottle of Bactine found at the same contained. Actually, the amount of lidocaine found in her body suggested that Annie would have had to ingest three to five bottles of Bactine instead of just the one found at the scene. The McCants were also adamant that Annie had only ever had that one bottle. She'd never gotten any additional bottles of the solution besides that first one. And more to the point of that bottle, if Annie was supposed to have drank the Bactine straight from the bottle as the presence of epithelial cells on the lip of the open top suggested, then why weren't her fingerprints on the rest of the bottle? Hell, why weren't any fingerprints anywhere on the bottle? The McCanns weren't buying what the ME and BPD were trying to sell them, simply because it didn't really add up. Though the family is known for how devoutly Catholic they were, they have said that they understand the suicide theory is certainly a possibility. Suicide was long considered a mortal sin by the Catholic Church's teachings, so some have wondered if the McCanns have pushed back against the idea of Annie dying by suicide as a way to reconcile with their religion. However, the McCanns have come out and said that is not the case. And it's really not the case. Because what they raised the alarm about were the factors of the case that started to raise more hashtag questions and concerns about how the Baltimore police conducted their investigation. Though the Baltimore police closed Annie's case in 2009 and briefly reopened it again in 2013 to no avail, the McCanns have fought throughout the years have it really reopened and investigated again, especially with all of the troubling incidents over the years that have suggested 
there is much more to Andy's death than anyone suspected. For instance, the McCanns approached Bayer, the manufacturer of Annie's Bactine Spray, asking if there was enough lidocaine in one five-ounce bottle to kill someone. Bayer said no. In a letter to the McCanns, they said that the pharmacologist employed by Bayer, quote, did not expect a five-fluid-ounce bottle to have provided what could amount to a fatal dose. When Sergeant Jones came calling on Bayer in December 2008, they had this to say to him and his inquiry about a victim with what he called a large amount of lidocaine in her system. Bayer stated that there were 3.75 grams of lidocaine hydrochloride in a Bactine bottle. Jones apparently took this to mean, yes, these 3.75 grams could kill someone because police later told the press that this consultation with Bayer proved to them that, quote, there was more than enough lidocaine in one bottle for a fatal dose. But Jones didn't ask how much it would take to kill his victim. And in an internal email obtained by the Washington Post, Bayer stated actually that they believed it would take, quote, 11 grams of lidocaine to cause acute oral toxicity in a 110-pound human. The ME stated that he was also surprised by this idea of death by Bactine and claims they tested and retested the toxicology level several times with the help of a PhD toxicologist who ran the lab, so they inexplicably trusted him. Dr. Michael Bodden, however, the famous pathologist, he wasn't so sure. Bodden, working on behalf of the McCanns, reviewed the tests done during the autopsy and came to a much different conclusion. Annie would have had to drink not just three or five bottles, as previously believed. He theorized that she would have had to drink five or six bottles at the very least for her to have apparently overdosed on Bactine. What's more, like many of the dissenting medical professionals who were weighing in on the unusual case, Bodden echoed what they were saying. No one had ever even heard of death by Bactine, much less witnessed it in their own careers. Dr. Harry J. Bonnell, formerly the chief deputy medical examiner of Cincinnati in San Diego, he also examined the toxicology reports and found he disagreed with their findings. Dr. Bono concluded that, quote, there is far more lidocaine found at the autopsy of Annie McCann than could possibly have been produced by her ingesting five fluid ounces of Bactine. And he also noted that it tasted so bad, no human could ingest it without violently, violently vomiting, though Annie's stomach was found to be very full. Something else that was found in Annie's system, not just the food in her stomach, but alcohol. Just enough to make toxicologists and the ME think that Annie had had at least one alcoholic drink before she died. Lidocaine is notoriously nasty tasting, as Bono pointed out, so police theorized that Annie had possibly mixed the Bactine with a beer or a mixed drink in order to get through the experience of drinking it. But if that was the case, where was the reflexive vomit one might expect to have been at the scene? In 2016, Barry Levine, the same toxicologist that M.E. Fowler swore up and down had run the test perfectly, admitted this to the McCanns. Quote, I can't tell you that one bottle of Bactine was the legal, lethal dose. I really don't know that. According to the Washington Post, quote, he said he had seen lidocaine in dead bodies many times, often injected by medical personnel, using it to stop an irregular heartbeat, which lidocaine is also used for. In Levine's own words, quote, even when a person's effectively dead, 
we're not seeing anywhere near that concentration of lidocaine in the heart blood. He said he didn't know how that much lidocaine entered Annie's body, just that it was there. More anomalies began to emerge. It was leaked that Darnell Kinlaw's prints weren't the only ones found on the Volvo after all. 19 other DNA samples were found on and inside the car, yet none of them were tested. And DNA was found under Annie's fingernails after all, and that too was never tested. DNA underneath a victim's fingernails is like true crime 101. So how could the police not have had that tested? The McCanns pushed for more forensics to be done when they learned of the untested DNA and the toxicology reports that they wanted retested, but they were met with a shocking confession. A complete workup couldn't be performed because, well, Annie's heart and brain, they were gone. In a move that to this day, no one can explain, when Annie's body was returned to the McCanns for her burial, her brain and her heart weren't returned with the rest of her. They've never been found and no one can explain what happened to them. More missing pieces of evidence were added to the pile. The police seized Annie's computer to see if she had engaged in any dangerous internet activities. And yet her hard drive also went mysteriously went missing. Her cell phone was never recovered and Darnell Kinlaw claimed that they had simply dumped the phone when they dumped Annie's body. So too was the $1,000 missing, as were her shoes, despite having socked feet. Hear me when I say this, what the fuck? <laughs> despite all of the missing pieces that were equating to something sinister having happened, there was one puzzle piece that turned up with an answer, or at least a name, Blanca Murillo. Jim Cotnes, another private investigator that the McCanns hired, had found the name of the woman who was allegedly with Annie at Vicaro's that day in October. He hadn't just found her name either. He had found people, a fair amount of people, who knew the woman from the sketch. There were, quote, people in Fairfax County, at a Costco, at a Catholic charity, and at Annie's church who said they had seen her, that she was Hispanic, and mentioned needing immigration help. But even with this information, the police refused to investigate further into the no longer necessarily mystery woman. They have long stated that this woman, quote, doesn't have anything to do with Annie's death, despite being one of the last known people seen with her. They've never even followed up on the possible lead this woman represents beyond listening to the waitress's account of seeing her with Annie. And honestly, why not? Why wouldn't you at least attempt to find the now hypothetically named woman who was last seen with a possible victim. Why let such an easy lead go? This Blanca Murillo isn't the only name to pop up, at least not for another time. Darnell Kinlaw, he of the horrifying joyride decisions, made another chillingly similar joyride in 2011, right after he shot and killed his girlfriend, Lakeisha Player. Was this an M.O. being repeated? Police have determined once again that he had nothing to do with Annie's death. The McCanns even met with Darnell in his maximum security prison in 2016 to finally ask him to his face if he killed Annie. He maintains that he, quote, didn't murder her. You almost have to wonder if he worded it like that purposely. 
There was another mysterious person, this one who hasn't been named, but has garnered suspicion in the more recent years of the McCann's push for a reinvestigation. Annie had allegedly been texting a man who lived in Prince William County just before she disappeared, and that's an area outside of their hometown of Alexandria. And this guy had ties to the Baltimore area. Who was this man and why was Annie texting him? Police claimed that they investigated everyone whose number had been listed in her cell phone records, but they didn't actually have records of what those text messages said. All they knew were the numbers that she had been in contact with, as evidenced by her cell phone records, and that she had last used her phone at 7.13 a.m. on October 30th, the day before she vanished. Coupled with the bizarre J-shaped marking on her ankle that police were claiming was just a sign of lividity, a terrifying possibility had presented itself to the McCanns. Had sheltered, admittedly naive Annie been conned into a human trafficking scheme? Trafficking experts said that when considering their prime targets, traffickers will often recruit girls from the suburbs, and that's most often. And a few years after Annie's death in 2014, a group of these traffickers were uncovered right in Fairfax County, doing exactly that targeting, recruiting, grooming, and preying on vulnerable girls in that suburban neighborhood. So too do traffickers often use older women to lure girls into their grasp, usually under the guise of offering them help or an escape. Was this an explanation for the woman seen sitting with Annie at Vaccaro's? Had Annie been lured to Baltimore with plans of escaping her life with this woman's help? Was that why she took her favorite clothes and jewelry with her? Had she been promised an exciting night out in a different city before starting this new life? McCann family investigators even went so far as to reach out to one of the most infamous traffickers in the area, Justin Strom, the overlord of what prosecutors call, quote, the largest underage prostitution ring in the Washington area's history. And he's been serving a 40-year federal prison sen sentence ever since. Speaking with the PI, he told them how Fairfax County was a prime spot to pick up victims and that West Potomac High, where Annie had attended school, was often one of the schools that girls were recruited from. He said that once they had secured a victim, they would be lured up to Baltimore and ultimately find themselves trapped and forced into prostitution. Most interestingly and alarmingly, Strom shared with the McCann's PI that, quote, it was not uncommon to force girls to drink numbing agents to make them comply. Was this it then? Had Annie been poisoned by Bactine, slipped into an alcoholic drink, drugged without knowing it, and perhaps because of how thin she was and with an accompanying lowered immune system, had this Bactine-laced drink ultimately killed her? It's a scenario many have come to believe about this case, but... The Baltimore police refused to investigate it further, despite the McCanns even calling upon Senator Chuck Grassley's help and his influence. He sides with the McCanns in that something about Annie's case just doesn't add up. The FBI, however, disagrees. After getting involved in the case of the McCanns urging, the FBI concluded in 2013 that there wasn't a homicide here. In October of that same year, agents met with the McCanns, but weirdly, refused to let them take notes of the meeting, and repeated what they had long been told by the BPD. Annie's case was simply not a homicide.
It seems like the mantra of the Baltimore police at this point, 12 years later. Annie McCann was not murdered and her case will not be reopened. With so much evidence to the contrary, though, and at least the evidence that highlights her case should, in fact, be reopened, it's no wonder that there are so many hashtag questions that beg for answers. Let's ask them now. When faced with unimaginable events, unprecedented happenings, take fucking 2020, for instance, we often remark, if we only knew then what we know now. When it comes to Annie McCann and her inexplicable death, not even that wistful phrase can give her loved ones any solace because, I mean, Really, what do we know now that we knew back in 2008? It'll be 12 years next month since that day, Annie, for reasons we still don't fully know, packed her family's white Volvo with some favorite mementos and left the life that she knew. This was a girl who loved animals so much that she became a vegetarian. She was a regular at weekday mass, known for her kindness, and was so innocently childlike still, she took a box of Cheerios with her for this journey that she claimed was the beginning of a new life. This dream of hers was, and still is, a nightmare for her parents, though. A nightmare filled with questions and things left unsaid, unanswered, in a complete lack of understanding for any of the things that brought their daughter to her death in Baltimore. Or was it someone who brought her to Baltimore? Was she lured there by insidious human traffickers who targeted her for the same sweetness and naivete that endeared her to so many others? Did a female accomplice approach her, ingratiate herself to Annie and her kindness? Did this woman drive with famously directionally challenged Annie to Baltimore, where she found herself trapped? Was she subdued with a laced drink, a drink laced with the same substance she was so diligent about cleaning her ears? Or did Annie find herself in an overwhelming situation, one that triggered her suicidal ideation? Did she simply decide to die by suicide in a strange way and under stranger circumstances? Twelve years later, and we still don't know. All we know is that a sweet young girl was found dead, and the rightful demands calling for a reinvestigation are going unanswered, like the rest of the questions surrounding Annie McCann's death. Annie's parents acknowledge that no one ever knows what's going through the mind of someone who considers suicide as a means to end their pain and thus their life. They acknowledge it's a very real possibility, however unexpected. And they even admit, quote, it would be easier if Annie committed suicide. Then we wouldn't be going through this for years. Answers, no matter how painful, at least offer closure. The McCanns, though, still grappling with their pain so many years later, they still maintain this. Something, someone, orchestrated the death of their thoughtful, funny, artistic daughter. 
As Mary Jane, Annie's mother, put it quite directly, quote, there's no way in hell she killed herself. Hell, for the McCanns, I have to imagine, is living with these unanswered questions for so many years. The McCann family and Annie's memory, they deserve to find peace, even if it means confronting demons from their daughter's past they never knew that they had to fear. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question loaded story to tell you. Before I sign off, I want to give a shout out to the newest member of the DAW Patreon crew, my friend Eric Ritvo. Your support truly means the world, and thank you for being the first member of the newest Patreon level, the DAW Crewmates. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest. Like I said, there's a new Patreon level and it only costs $1. You can support DAW and the work I do here for just $1 a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode and have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. This month's calendar of exclusive Patreon content for all of the different levels is sure to get everyone in the spooky mood. So come check it all out on patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast. This week, we're going to be talking about the cult Cyanon in the quote-unquote troubled teen industry that Paris Hilton herself recently exposed in her new documentary in this month's iteration of the Wine and Weirds live stream. So like I said, come check everything out over at patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell over on Instagram at, at darkashellpodcast, all one word, and on Twitter over at darkashellpod. Again, that's all one word too. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own to me over at darkashellpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again.